How much therapy is enough therapy? When do I graduate therapy? Is this even working? You know, I feel really different in this relationship. Wow, that conversation didn't even faze me. I didn't shake when I stood up for myself for the first time. Goethe said, everything is hard before it's easy. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Welcome, welcome to another week of this podcast. And I want to start by thanking all of you for listening, for engaging this content, for sharing this podcast. I usually do this at the end, but for some reason this week, I just feel so inspired to just start by thanking this audience. We are up to 9,500, almost 10,000 downloads. It's in too many countries I, to count. I, I haven't counted recently, but it's more than it was. And so this is all because of you. It's because you listen, you share it. And I get emails constantly from people who are like, hey, I just, you know, someone shared your podcast with me and it's really helping. So thank you for listening. This week, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, spring is here and thank goodness if you live in a place where you had a long, dreary winter. It was a long, dreary winter in Nashville, not terribly cold, but gray, so gray. We don't get a lot of sunlight in the winter and it gets a little dreary. So today it was like, you know, upper 60s, maybe even 70s, and the sun was shining, and there's just not a cloud in the sky, and the birds are singing, and the trees are blooming, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful spring day. And I saw all these posts on social media about, you know, people saying, I feel so much better when the weather gets warmer. I feel so much more like myself. And I thought, you know, we're healing. The earth comes back to life. And I hope you are too. We're coming out of COVID. Of course, we're in a tough world situation with war and the Ukraine and whatever your opinions and your thoughts are about that. I think we can all agree that our hearts go out to the innocent civilians in the Ukraine and in Russia who are affected by this negatively. War affects everyone. But internally, you know, the world around us is always going to be its own struggle. So many struggles. But internally, I hope you're healing. So what I wanted to talk about today was how you know you're healing. So the title of today's podcast is You Know You're Healing When. All right, let's dive in. You know you're healing when you stop comparing yourself to others. Let's start with that. When you're healing, you become more and more in touch with yourself. The pattern of comparing ourselves to others is the result of a loose sense of identity, right? We don't know who we are, what we're doing, what we're about, what our own life is about. We don't know how to focus our energy on our own pursuits because we don't know what they are. (laughs) So we compare ourselves to other people and we usually compare ourselves to people who seem happier than us. Is that fair? And what do they have that we think makes them happier than us? They have popularity, wealth, friends, social life. They travel to glitzy places All in all, their life looks more attractive, more filled than our life. And we look at our own life or we look at our own body or whatever we're comparing and we think this is inferior. This is less than what they have. So we've immediately created an inferiority and a superiority system. Now that's if we're comparing ourselves and we feel inferior. If we're comparing ourselves and we feel superior, then we get that sort of smug sense of self-satisfaction when we look at other people and think, thank God I'm not in those shoes. I'm doing much better than so-and-so. I feel really good, good about myself. Friends, when we're healing, we just get less interested. Why? Because our sense of self is growing. That healthy relationship we have with ourselves, that healthy sense of self-love, 
that healthy sense of self-importance, not grandiosity, but a sense that your life matters. Does it matter for, you know, in all of outer space for all of eternity, all time? I don't know what your religious beliefs are. On some level, I think all of our lives matter. And on some level, I think really none of our lives matter, right? We're just kind of floating on this rock around the sun, spinning through outer space for this moment that we're in. But when we're healing, we get a sense that this life matters to me. We stop comparing ourselves to other people. What they're doing seems more and more irrelevant to us. And we start to ask ourselves, like, why does it matter? It doesn't matter. Why? Because we're appreciating our unique talents and circumstances that bring us to our own outcomes so much more. We're content to be living our own story. This reminds me a little bit of that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about the great lesson, the great sermon. He's talking about comparing yourself to other people. And he says, you know, don't worry about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Worry about the plank in your own eye. And what is he commenting on? He's commenting on a comparison of superiority. We look at someone else and we think, you know, you've got a speck of sawdust in your own eye. And it's because I can't see the plank that's in my own eye. And when we're growing and we're healing, we're much more concerned with our own work. And we know how hard the work is. And so when we see other people acting in ways that aren't really healthy, we kind of just shrug our shoulders and say, you know, it's hard. Life is hard and the road is long. They're on their journey. I'm on mine. We don't compare ourselves. We don't feel better because other people are struggling, nor do we feel worse because other people seem to be striving. We're living our own story. We're busy with our own goals. We're busy with our own growth, our own lives, and we're not that busy looking at other people. We've learned that comparison and outperforming other people isn't satisfying for that long. It's, a, it's an ego hit right? It's an ego hit of superiority. Oh, I'm better than so-and-so. I'm doing better. I'm making more money. I've got a bigger house. My wife is prettier. My kids are doing better, whatever it is. Okay. We get that ego hit of superiority and it's like a drug and it hits us straight to the head and it feels really good. And then just like a drug, it wears off. Why? Because it's not connected to our own sense of purpose. I don't know who you are listening out there, but your, your purpose in life is not to be better than other people. It is to be yourself. When we're living our own story, when we're healing, we're connected to a desire to be ourselves, to live our life, to live out our purpose. And when we're in that ego place of comparing ourselves to other people, that's more connected to a desire to win. That's not nearly as satisfying as being in your purpose. And how do we get to purpose? Okay, that's a completely different podcast, but... You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like a combination of knowing what you're really good at, knowing what your talents are. And, you know, I talk to some clients sometimes and the ones that have real low self-esteem, they're really struggling with self-esteem. They'll say something like, well, I'm not good at anything. Friends, that's not true of one person anywhere, anywhere on the earth. Everyone has value. Everyone has presence. And everyone's purpose in life is to be that presence in all that that allows you to do. That's all I'm going to say on purpose today. If you want me to say more about it, just write me an email. But we stop comparing ourselves to others because we've also learned that the inferiority comparison causes us to sulk, right? We're not making as much. We're not as pretty. We're not as thin. We're not as popular. We're not in love. We don't have a partner. So-and-so does. I don't. Woe is me, right? We get into these places. And when we're growing, we've learned that sulking when we don't measure up, is self-abuse. I'm going to say more about this in a minute. But it's self-abuse. It's focusing on your deficit. 
That's abusive. No one would want that in relationship. Nobody would be friends or close to or trusting of a person who only ever focused on what they weren't getting right or what they lacked. But when we compare ourselves to other people, that's exactly what we're doing. We're bearing down on ourselves for not accomplishing or being or having what somebody else does. So we know we're healing when we just stop doing that. We are content to be living our own story. Number two, you know you're healing when you stop beating yourself up. This is a big one. This is like the turning point in therapy. There are several. I shouldn't say the turning point. I should say a significant turning point in therapy. When my clients stop going from this place of either panic or deep shame or like paralyzing sorrow over their mistakes, and they can kind of just shrug their shoulders and go, yeah, I did that again, but I have more awareness about it. On to the next thing. Oh my goodness, that moment in therapy is so exciting because now I know they're picking up speed. All that shame that used to stop them and slow them down. Friends, when we get into that shame, when we're beating ourselves up and we get into that shame, it's like falling in cement. You have to slog your way out of it. It's like falling in the thickest mud and you get covered in it and it weighs you down. And then you have to pull yourself up out of that and you have to go find a shower and take a shower and scrub it all off. And then you're nice and fresh and clean until you make another mistake. And then you fall into a pit of mud and you're covered in the mud and the mud is covered all over you and you're slogging your way through it and you can't get through it. and You can't get out of it until you can finally find a way to shower it off. Do you see what I mean? This is terrible for the process and the cadence of growth. The mudslide of shame (laughs) needs to stop. So you know you're growing when you stop doing that. We all make mistakes. Life is a continuous series of choices, right? If you're an adult and you live in a rather free society, you have choices to make every single day. And if you're listening to this podcast and you don't live in a free society, you don't maybe have choices about how you live your life on the outside, but you have many, many choices about how you live your life on the inside. That means your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, and what you focus your mind on. So even still, even though totalitarian governments, even though oppressive structures may take away our outside choices, they really cannot ever touch the freedom of the mind. They can't, unless we allow it or unless we get brainwashed. Yet another podcast. But for the gross majority of us listening to this podcast, life is a continuous series of choices. And the best choices we make are the ones that we were prepared for. We were informed, we were practiced. We'd done something like this before. It's not luck. It's not like, wow, I'm so lucky I made that choice. We knew what we were doing. We made a good decision about it. We weighed our options. We weighed the pros and cons. We knew what we wanted, and we made a choice that was connected to what we want. Okay, those are our best choices. What are our worst choices? The opposite. Lack of preparation, lack of knowledge, lack of practice. Those are our poorest choices. And some of that stuff was out of our control. Some of us weren't prepared for adult life. I felt that way a lot when I entered adulthood. I wasn't prepared for a lot of the realities of adulthood. I was sort of prepared for a very bizarre, narrow world that my mom tried to create growing up. But when I got into the real world, I was kind of like, oh, I was not prepared for this. So I made a lot of mistakes because I wasn't prepared Okay, I didn't have the information I needed to make better choices. So I didn't get any chance to practice with that information. So those are poor choices. Now, I used to beat myself up. 
And then I did some work in therapy and in the 12-step world, and I realized that I can't hold myself accountable for making choices about things I have never learned about. I didn't learn what to look for in a partner. My mother taught me to look for, you know, someone who was dashingly handsome and charming. Now, I will say, Jared is dashingly handsome, and he can be charming, but mostly what my mother sent me out into the world to look for was a narcissist. <laughs> this, like, charming and possibly perfect, dashingly handsome person. I, I surely fell into that quite a few times. Those were poor choices on my part. But in the course of therapy and doing my work, I learned that about myself. I learned, geez, I was taught to look for the wrong things. I wasn't taught to seek out character. I wasn't taught to seek out someone who had a big heart. I was literally taught to seek out someone who was impressive and probably who would impress my mother. Okay, so I made mistakes. Now, why did I stop beating myself up? Well, the first thing I had to do was realize that I wasn't prepared. I didn't have good knowledge. So the mistakes that I made, I was going to make unless I just lucked out. Now, the other reality is this. No one is prepared for every single thing you're going to confront in life. You could be prepared for adulthood financially, relationally, academically, professionally, on all these fronts, but you will inevitably be confronted with choices in life you are not ready for. You don't know what to do. Some of those choices, you're going to have the luxury of gaining some information, doing some homework, doing some research, and then other situations, you're going to have to decide things on the fly. And you're going to make mistakes. I'm saying all of that to say you're going to make mistakes. There's no way you can know everything ahead of time. When you're growing, you stop beating yourself up and you realize life is a process that's unfolding. So when we're growing, we act differently when we make mistakes. Not if we make mistakes, when we make mistakes. We realize that mistakes are part of learning. Part of learning is doing it wrong and then doing it right doing it poorly and then doing it better. So we're not shocked. We're not surprised that we made a mistake. And we can distinguish between legitimate remorse, which feels like grief. You know, when you just put your head in your, your forehead in your hand, you think, oh gosh, I can't believe I did that, right? That's that feeling of remorse. And of course, the bigger the choice, the bigger the sense of remorse it will be. That's how you learn. It feels like grief. And we can know when we're healing, we know that we're learning our lessons and we don't devolve into self-abuse. So let's talk about self-abuse a little bit. Self-abuse is doing harm to yourself by how you treat yourself. That's what self-abuse is. It's doing yourself harm. So verbal self-abuse is, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did that. What kind of an idiot would make a choice like that? Friends, who would, who would you say that to? That's, that's abusive. That is self-abuse. Now, sometimes we all kind of let that slip out, right? Man, I was an, I'm, an, I'm an idiot. But when you're healing, believe me when I say this, you actually catch yourself. You catch yourself saying that and you go, wait a second. No, that's not true. I'm not going to talk about myself like that. That part of you that's developing self-respect starts to speak up. Physical self-abuse, hitting yourself, cutting, burning, any kind of self-harm, starving yourself, gorging on food, over-exercising, okay? In physical self-abuse, you're harming the physical body. It's how we punish ourselves. This is what we believe before we're healing. This is what we believe we deserve. We're used to being held to a critically high standard. And so when we mess up, we beat ourselves up. And it's all shame. It's the mudslide of shame. 
When we're healing, we stop doing this because we know a couple of things. The first thing is it is an utter waste of time. No one grows from this practice. No one gets better from beating yourself up. You might learn. You might actually make better decisions that look better on the outside. But hear me when I say you may be changing out of fear and shame, but you're not growing. Why? Because growth looks like better self-respect. When we mess up, we don't treat ourselves poorly because we have new self-worth. We just don't fall into the mudslide of shame. It's a waste of time. And we have to get out of it and shower off and clean off all the mud and keep going, right? It's totally inefficient because you know that eventually you're going to have to get back on the path and deal with yourself. So why go through that mudslide? You are human. You made a mistake. You didn't have good information. You didn't have good practice or good preparation. That's typically why you make poor choices. So you get to identify what it is. Okay, was I not prepared? Was I not knowledgeable? Or was I not practiced? Sometimes we learn, oh, I need to set more boundaries. And we realize an opportunity went by and we didn't set the boundary we, we should have set. We could have set, right? We beat ourselves up. Okay, in that situation, you just need more practice. You have the preparation. You have the knowledge. You just didn't have the practice. So we have to go easier. And when we're healing, we are. We stop wasting all that time in the mudslide of shame. As a result of that, when you're healing, you know you're healing when you bounce back more easily. So mistakes are a part of life. We just talked about that. Why do we make poor choices? Why do we make mistakes? A lack of preparation, information, and practice. Okay. What do I mean when we bounce back more easily? Our energy and our focus and our purpose returns to us more quickly. I used to bottom out. Okay. This is the opposite of getting derailed, bottoming out, you know, the age-old example of, you know, the alcoholic who slips up and has a drink and then bottoms out. Okay, the shame takes over. I can't do this. That's the beating myself up, the mudslide of shame, the self-abuse. Okay, well, now I'm just going to go on a bender. No, stop. As soon as you know you had a drink, stop. It's a lot easier to come back from one drink than it is a 72 to 96-hour bender right? Same thing is true in all walks of life. The same thing is true with situations that are out of our control that we struggle with. I was thinking about the time I used to spend with my family. If you asked me what situations in my life derailed me the most, it was always when I went home. When I was in my life, wherever I lived, it was pretty good. I had, I've always had really, really good friends, faithful, loyal, wonderful friends. But then I'd go home for a family holiday, Uh, birthday, whatever it was, and I would get derailed. Why? Because the dynamics that were going on in my home were so toxic for me. And the more therapy I did, the more I saw. The more I saw the way I was treated, the more I saw the way my family treated each other. But I was mostly concerned at that time with the way I was treated and consistently I was disrespected. Everyone else in my family seemed to be worthy of being heard and respected except me. That's how I perceived it. I was constantly interrupted I was dismissed as though I had nothing of worth to say. This was my, well, really my whole childhood and into my 20s and 30s. And then if I spoke up, like, hey, I wasn't finished talking or you just interrupted me, I was mocked. I was made the brunt of jokes. This is called being the scapegoat in your family system. It's also called being the mascot. That was my family role, the scapegoat and the mascot. Nobody took me seriously. 
And nobody really listened to me when I talked about the dysfunction in the family system for years, years. There was denial, defense of the family system. You're being too harsh on everybody. I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. (laughs) And I really don't care what anybody thinks anymore. But that was the pattern. And it was so toxic for me. It hit every nerve. I would come back to my life from being home and feel all those childhood wounds all over again. It's like I was two inches high. The disrespect, the dismissal, it was awful. My presence was almost completely irrelevant to these people unless I was making them laugh or being a laughing stock, being a goof. That's the mascot role, okay? So then I'd bottom out and I would just be depressed. I'd feel, I was crying, I was teary. It would take me, you know, a few weeks, honestly, to get back to my normal emotional state to recover and get back to a place of neutrality or equilibrium. And I would replay all of those things over and over and over. And I still fall into that sometimes. But I'd replay it and I'd churn up my own anger and my own pain over and over and over again. And this would go on and on. And as I healed, that period of time got shorter and shorter and shorter. So I used to have this joke, I would say that when I would go home, I'd have to budget in the cost of the plane or the train ticket, wherever I was coming from, food, transportation, you know, those kinds of costs, maybe a gift if I was going home or gifts if I was going home for a holiday or something. And then I would have to factor in the cost of therapy when I got back. (laughs) That was part of my budget when I went to see my family. So I would think, okay, I need this much because I'm going to have to see Mary. That was my therapist in those days. I'm going to have to see Mary like two times that week and then maybe twice the next week and then maybe once for a couple of weeks. I mean, I would just bottom out. It was so toxic to me. Couldn't get back on my feet without help. And then I could. And then it took less time and less time. Why? Because I started to care less what they thought. And when you're healing, that kind of goes back to the first point. I wasn't comparing myself to them anymore. I didn't want the respect that they were giving each other because the more I watched, the more I realized they don't respect each other at all. The whole family is disrespectful. (laughs) This is a family trait. It's not just me, right? And I realized that behavior like this came from very wounded, dysfunctional people. So I stopped giving that much energy to it. I didn't want to give that much energy to hurt and hurting people who were hurting me. I was beginning to focus in that time in my life more on the relationships with people who were doing their work. They were seeing me. They were hearing me. That's where my focus went. And I divested from my family of origin and invested in other relationships that were much more satisfying and healthy. I noticed that I felt less anger. Because I saw how chaotic it all was. And in some ways it still is. And I stopped feeling like a victim and I started feeling more like an observer. And that was a big turning point. And the family noticed to some extent, why are you so quiet? Why aren't you talking? I'm like, well, I would tell you the truth, but I don't think you can hear it. So I would just say, no, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm just hanging out. Eventually over time, I sort of found my voice again with the members of my family who could hear me. But I knew I was healing because I wasn't derailed anymore. The other part of this is, as you're healing, you have better tools. Confrontation and conflict don't take days to resolve. They can be resolved in hours or even minutes. Why? Two reasons. Number one, you're not getting into it with impossible people. That's one of the things I had to learn, which is what made me bounce back easier. I wasn't engaging with toxic, impossible people anymore. I was keeping my distance. If I engaged as my authentic self, I was getting slapped back. Well, what did that teach me? As self-respect grew and and self-worth grew, I stopped investing 
in those conversations and in those relationships. And guess what? Conflict resolution is a hell of a lot easier with healthy people. (laughs) That doesn't need to be said. It should be an assumption, but I'm going to say that. You can bounce back a lot more easily with people who are doing their work because conflict doesn't take months to resolve. It doesn't go on and on and on. It gets resolved. Maybe hours, maybe even minutes. Okay? You can communicate your feelings and your needs more accurately and efficiently the healthier you get. So what does that mean? It means you eliminate the need for long, drawn out, dramatic conversations where you say everything except the thing that needs to be said, which is, I feel I need. It's actually very simple, but the amount of work it takes to get to that clarity is unbelievable and frankly, very expensive. (laughs) But you bounce back faster. Number one, you care less what dysfunctional people think of you. And number two, you're invested in relationships where there's not a whole lot to bounce back from. Isn't that nice? You're beginning to know your body. You know what you're feeling. You know how to name it. You know what your body's telling you. You know where the boundaries are. You're in touch with yourself. So again, that combination means that it doesn't take a whole lot of time to bounce back. Number one, you're in relationship with healthier people and you have better tools. Now you have a life that doesn't derail you anymore. So what kind of a life does derail us? When we're in toxic, impossible relationships with people, And we have no tools. We're going to be off the reservation most of the time. So ask yourself, what are the things that still derail you? Is it better? Do you bounce back sooner? Because if you do, that's growth. And if not, ask yourself, are these relationships workable? And how are my tools? All right. You know you're healing when the victim narrative isn't attractive anymore. This is a big one. When you're healing, you welcome and embrace a sense of self-direction in your life. What do we get when we're in a victim mindset? We are cultivating and soliciting sympathy, attention, even pity. Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Oh, poor you. Poor you. As if we had no choices. Now, sometimes we don't have choices, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But when we're healing, the victim narrative becomes kind of gross to us. Why? Because the sympathy and the attention and even the pity that we received by highlighting our victimhood is now replaced with healthy self-validation and empowerment. And when people pity us and treat us like victims, we want to like, no, 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 don't treat me like that. That's not me anymore. The unhealthy victim, if we're in a victim mindset, we always seek validation outwardly. We need other people to recognize our hurts and say that they're real. Now, I'm going to say a couple things about that. We have to own it when we were victimized. Okay, I don't want anyone hearing this podcast to beat themselves up and say, well, I have no right to ever say that I was a victim because Vanessa's telling me that I shouldn't have a victim mindset. No, 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 no. Wait, hang on. No, I'm not. You need to own it when you were victimized, but you need to own when you were actually victimized. So let's talk about that because this is really important. A true moment of victimization occurs when you are overpowered. That is what has to be in place for you to be victimized. Someone has to exert power over you in a way that harms you. That is to be victimized or something has to exert power over you like a natural disaster, something like that. Okay. Or war, things that are out of your control, but they have more power than you do. And you are overpowered in that space. So by the very nature and definition of the word victim, you cannot be someone else's victim, which is to say they cause you harm if you have more or equal power to them. 
Okay, if you have more power over them than they have over you, they cannot victimize you. If you have equal power, they cannot victimize you. A victim is one who is overpowered by another to their detriment and harm. Okay, that's what makes a victim a victim is they were overpowered. Now, obviously, children are easily victimized because they don't have the strength, the agency, the maturity, the resources, or the knowledge to protect or defend themselves. Children can't leave abusive situations easily because of power structures. They can't do that. They have to stay with the people that are keeping them alive. So they are, by the very nature of being young and naive and incapable of caring for themselves, they're disempowered. That means it's very easy to overpower them. Now, for adults to be victims, it's the same standard. They have to be at the mercy of a more powerful entity that could be a person, as is the case in sexual assault, domestic violence. If someone has more physical strength, you can be victimized. It could be a system, a system of oppression. It could be a government. It could be a natural disaster or an event that's out of their control, like wartime I just mentioned. Okay, all of these are legitimate spaces of victimization. Now, it is much easier to victimize children than adults in, I'm talking about a free society, okay? In this, po- in this moment, I'm speaking as someone who was born and raised in a rather, not completely, but rather free society. Girls and women are much more easily abused than men, not boys. Boys are just as susceptible because they're younger. But girls and women are more susceptible to abuse than men because men are usually physically stronger and more powerful. Okay? So these are the dynamics that we need to be aware of. And why is this important? Because if we are in a victim narrative and we don't know where our power is, we can become people who give our power away or we don't assume the power we rightfully have. And we allow ourselves to be overpowered because we have not learned to use our voice We're allowing ourselves to be harmed. We're colluding. This is muddy water. If we're an adult and we haven't used our voice, but we're allowing ourselves to be abused or victimized in some way, are we victims in this space? Maybe, maybe not. I think it depends on the the situation. But if we have the agency, the resources, and the power to remove ourselves from danger or harm, we are not a victim in that instance. If we have a choice to say, you know what, you're an abusive person and I don't like the way you talk to me, I'm not going to be here for it. You are no longer a victim. If you work in an industry where the pay gap is just wildly you know, unjust between you and the people that you work for, whatever the situation is, you are probably not a victim. You can work somewhere else. You have the power to work somewhere else. You have the will and the right to leave. Do you see? So this is where it gets into muddy water. But the question is, why do folks continue to talk about their lives like victims? Every story they tell, everyone else has all the power and not them. Their voice is silenced, right? It's sort of like I was talking about my adulthood before, my early adulthood. I hadn't developed my voice yet. I hadn't learned enough yet. And I was still in a very victimized stance because I didn't know yet that I had the power to stand up and get out of that space. As a kid, I had no power whatsoever. As an adult, I did, and I had to come into that power. 
But if we don't do that, being a victim can become an identity. What does that mean? It means the relationship we have with everybody and everything is now about levels of power and control. We are forcing, attempting to force other people to see how we've been hurt, how they've hurt us. All of our stories become about how we've been hurt. We're always in the victim role. We share tale after tale, narrative after narrative about how we were hurt, how we were overcome, how we were put down, how we were disempowered. We become extremely sensitive. And look, I'm speaking from experience. I have absolutely played the victim role. And I knew I was healing when I got out of it and when I didn't want to be in it anymore. So there's definitely some autobiography here. But I know that this is human nature. I know that a lot of us fall into this. We complain. We get used to being disempowered. We've become the victim in our relationships. Now, how do we know when being a victim has become an identity? How do we know if we're quote unquote playing the victim? We tend to exaggerate the harms committed against us. You know, a a mean look becomes a verbal assault or somebody pushing past us, which is undeniably rude becomes I was knocked off my feet. They knocked me off balance. Okay, like, see what I mean? When we hear this, right? We hear people who are just exaggerating the harms that they've suffered. Why are they doing that? Okay, from a psychotherapeutic perspective, the reason why they're doing that is because those harms, those wounds, that pain has not been validated. So what do we do? We up the ante. I'm not getting the sympathy I need. I gotta make it sound worse. I gotta make it sound worse. I gotta make it sound even worse. And before we know it, we're a victim in our lives. So we exaggerate the harms committed against us. Why? Because we really, really want someone to give us what? Empathy. We actually don't want sympathy. We don't want pity. We want empathy. And once we receive validation, once we learn to validate ourselves, we stop doing this. How do we know when we've become a victim as an identity? We lead our conversations with our pain. We are expert complainers. Nothing is a solution. Nothing will work. Woe is me. My situation is the worst. Now, again, sometimes we're going through legitimately hard times and we can talk about those painful experiences. We can receive support. We can ask for support. But when we're putting ourselves in the disempowered position, that's when we know we've assumed a victim identity. We don't like hearing about how we might change the situation when we're in the victim place. We want everyone to see us as we see ourselves, which is a helpless victim. So when we're growing, we don't want any of that. We don't accept it. When somebody tries to give us sympathy or pity, again, we're like, no, 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 I got this. I've got lots of choices in this situation. Don't give me any pity. I'm not a victim here. I'm just working through the hard parts. Do you see the difference? When we're healing, we don't want that attention. Why? Because it's disempowering. Treating someone like a victim is cutting off their strength. It's cutting off all of the options they have before them to move themselves out of a difficult situation, if that's possible. When we're healing, we don't want to be coddled anymore. We're holding ourselves accountable and we want other people to do the same. Why? Because it's empowering. Being held accountable starts to feel like love. When someone holds us accountable, it's like they're saying, I believe in you. You're strong. You got this. 
It feels like the same thing when we're healing. And when we're healing, we don't allow anyone to take our power away. We don't allow people to make us feel small. The victim narratives have run their course. Now we're responsible for how people treat us. That's how you know you're healing. The victim narrative isn't attractive anymore. Okay, you know you're healing when your true self is present in numerous growing areas of your life. What do I mean? I mean that you're choosing directions that are specific to your own goals and dreams. What that looks like practically is you're people-pleasing less. And more you're building the life you want and it's congruent to who you are. Your life looks like a reflection of your values. So you're not silencing your own voice. You're developing a healthy respect for your internal voice of direction. And you're confident that what you have to say has merit, it's worth hearing, and what you want to do has relevancy, it's worth doing. So what does that do for your life? It gives you a sense of energy and purpose. Your sense of energy and purpose about your life is going to be directly connected to how connected to your true self you are. If you're living out of the false self, your life is going to feel very empty, very empty. Why? Because you're living your life on conditioning. The conditioned self is the false self. Be this, do that, go here, wear this, attend this, graduate from here, get this job. That's all conditioning. That's who society tells you you have to be to be, quote unquote, a healthy member of society. The more you move into the true self, the more you're questioning all of that and discovering what is really true of you. What are your distinct, unique gifts, talents, thoughts? So you look around your life and you think my life is so connected to who I am. That also means that you're able to notice your conditioning. You know what it feels like in your mind and in your body when you're switching into that place of rote automaton compliance. You're able to move into authenticity more easily. You can catch yourself. You stop doing what's expected like, oh, I almost said such and such to so-and-so. Or I almost told so-and-so I would do that for them. That's not my true self. That's not what I want to do. I need to set a boundary there, whatever it is, okay? So you stop doing what's expected, what you were taught. You're more intentional about making choices that are relevant and true to yourself. You're setting boundaries with less guilt. Setting boundaries is not necessarily the hard part. The hard part is the guilt. Because if we're people pleasers or we have any empathy at all, very often if we set a boundary, it's hard to do that. We're connected to how this person feels on the other side of the boundary. Like, oh, I'm going to disappoint them or this is going to be hard for them. We don't want to let people down. We don't want to hurt people. I mean, that's really a function of kindness. (laughs) There's a conscientiousness to that. There's an empathy to that. But when we're healing, we set those boundaries. Again, that true self is present in more and more areas of life. So you're setting boundaries with less guilt. Why? Because you know that that boundary keeps you on your path. And that other people can handle it. Other people can handle disappointment. It's not fun, but they can. And you have more clarity about what a boundary is and what it's not. You stop telling people what to do. Well, you can't talk to me like that. That's my boundary. No, that's not a boundary. That's a directive. (laughs) And you don't get to tell people how they can talk to you. They can talk to you any way they want. Unless you're a parent. That's different. I'm talking about adult relationships. You have to put boundaries around kids with that. But if if an adult talks to you in a way you don't like, and you say, well, you can't talk to me like that. This is an example I use a lot when I talk about setting boundaries. That's not a boundary. A boundary is, I don't like the way you're talking to me. When you raise your voice, it makes me very, very scared and uncomfortable. And I am not going to listen to it because I don't like being scared and uncomfortable. So when you raise your voice, I am going to walk out of the room and we can continue the conversation when you can talk more calmly. 
That's a boundary. A boundary is letting somebody know what you will and will not tolerate, what does and does not work for you. It's not telling them who they are. It's not telling them what they can and can't do. It's telling them where your parameters are. That's a boundary, the parameters, right? And when you're healing, you know you're healing when you're setting boundaries and you see the value of it. You're not just angrily throwing boundaries around, but you're setting boundaries because you're creating relationships that are congruent with your true self. You know you're healing when you stop insisting on only taking a step of growth when you have no fear. Let me break this down a little bit, okay? Steps of growth, okay? First, we identify the problem. Let's say the problem is, you know, I've never pursued this career path and I've always wanted to, but I never have and I really regret it and I'm getting older and what if I never do it, okay? So that's the problem. The problem is my career currently is unfulfilling and I want to be doing that over there. So then we assess how we got here. You know, faulty thinking, was there abuse, was there trauma, was there habituated patterns that were unhealthy? How did we get to this place where we're so disconnected from what we really want? Okay, well, now we understand the patterns that got us there. Why is that useful information? So that we don't repeat them. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful to know what went wrong. That helps us give us give ourselves compassion. It helps us give ourselves grace, Right. Again, we don't beat ourselves up when we know how we got somewhere. It's like, okay, well, who else would I be? I didn't know to make a better choice. Right. So we know what we want. We know how we got off course. And then we're understanding the problematic behaviors. Okay. Well, I don't go for what I want because I'm terrified of rejection. And anytime that I think of rejection, I just stay where I am because it's safe. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Right. You with me? Okay, now we learn a better way. Well, what, what would be the better way? Well, the better way would be to take the risk, to talk to that person, to, you know, do the thing, whatever the thing is, to take the leap. Then there's the action step. And this is where we get stuck. This is where I get stuck. This is where you get stuck. This is where my clients get stuck. We get stuck at the action step. And we circle around the step, around and around, processing our feelings, talking about the action step. We make lists, we make plans, we talk about the feelings in our history. And then if you're in therapy, you can get in a loop of childhood. This is why I don't do this. And the pain and the rejection and the pain and the rejection. And I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid. We never take the action step. We never actually do something different. But change means ultimately that our lives are being lived differently. So we have to do something different. And when we're stuck, we want to understand something and take it apart until we don't fear it anymore. That's what we think we can do. Okay, if I talk about this enough, I won't fear it anymore. Friends, that is not going to happen. The only thing that's going to make us feel less fear is doing it. When we're growing, when we're healing, we understand that fear is part of the process. We don't let it stop us in our tracks anymore. We just know that I'm going to feel afraid. It's a new change in direction and fear is normal. I expect fear at this point, but I'm going to take the action step because that's the direction I want my life to be going. So what does that look like? It means the one who fears commitment still engages in relationship and they work through the fear of commitment in the relationship. Maybe the one who fears success asks for a raise or a promotion. The one who fears embarrassment takes a risk. That's me. I don't know how many of you follow me on Instagram. It's uh, at Vanessa underscore Londino underscore LPC. 
But I just put this up about like the emotions we avoid. My least favorite emotion is embarrassment. I hate looking inept. I hate when there's eyes on me. This is my ego being completely honest with you right now. I hate when there's eyes on me and I don't feel like I look good. (laughs) I hate it. It is still so deeply ingrained in me. My ego still wants to look competent and successful and like I've got it all in hand. And it is so hard for me to not be in control of that. Now I can be very authentic about, oh my goodness, I'm all over the place. I'm such a spaz. I don't know what I'm doing. Like I can be very self-deprecating and authentic in sort of an endearing way and be very real with people that way. But I don't like when it's not in my control. I don't like it. I don't like feeling embarrassed. Like somebody has seen me in my incompetence or my fear and I had no control over that. So that's something that I really have to be aware of and work on. I have to go ahead and take risks that I know if the outcome is I'm embarrassed, I can live with it. That's my growth process right now. And I have a book coming out. So there's a huge, huge space of risk and embarrassment, potential embarrassment or success that's coming. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. But the one who fears embarrassment takes a risk right? The one who fears looking stupid says, I don't know. But we stop waiting for that mythical, idyllic state of no fear. Oh, now I can take this step because I have no fear. Now I'm going to get into this relationship. I'm going to date because I have no fear. That does not happen. You're going to feel fear. What will move us through our fear is doing it. You know, I don't know how many of you watch gymnastics. Um, And I have for years and I've got all kinds of conscientious objections to how those little girls are treated but anyway for years I enjoyed women's gymnastics and I did gymnastics for a little bit when I was a little kid and I was just way too tall as soon as I hit 5'4 I was like in fifth grade they were like yeah take her out of this but I'm amazed when I see like you know Simone Biles or Allie Raceman I mean these little girls they just flip and flip and flip and I don't mean to call them little girls they're women but they're they're petite women and when they're doing these competitions, you know, the first time they go to the Olympics, they look like little girls. They're in adolescence and they just, you know, Simone Biles just flies through the air and twists and she's like inhuman. She's like a bird for a brief moment and then lands on her feet. She's absolutely unbelievable. And I heard Allie Raceman talking about how you develop those skills. And the first thing you have to do is a back handspring. And then you do two. And then you do a back tuck. And then you do a back tuck with a twist. And then you do a double back tuck. And then you do a double back tuck with a twist. And then you try, I mean, it goes on and on. But they are so afraid of those moves until they do them. And one of the things that Allie Raceman talked about was you have to like really, really high level elite gymnasts push through fear because it is natural to feel fear in these competitions. It's natural to feel fear doing these moves. My friends, it is natural for you to feel fear when you step outside of your comfort zone. But don't wait until you have no fear You know you're healing when you do it. You know that there's going to be fear. Fear is part of it. Okay, lastly, you know you're healing when you have an inward smile. What is an inward smile, Vanessa? It's that slight little smirk, not snarky, like a little smile, a little smirk we get on our faces when we realize we've been here before and this time we know better. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that little wistful look you get on your face like, I know you, Vanessa. I know you. It's a gentle chuckle. And that gentle chuckle is like a bridge between the moment that we're in and the former us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know that part of me. That inward smile. Sometimes nobody sees it. Sometimes maybe one person notices it and they might ask you, like, what are you smiling about? And what do we usually do? Sometimes we just say, "Mm, nothing. Or, oh, 
I was just remembering the things I used to do or whatever. Now, why is this important? Because it means you have a relationship with yourself. You are your own friend. You know you're healing when you are your own friend. All right, let's pause there. I love this quote. Everything is hard before it's easy. I want you to make a list this week. Bring it to your therapy appointment unless you have more pressing issues, but do this as an exercise for yourself. Make three lists of all the things you're working on in your life right now. Could be emotional, relational, physical, medical, whatever it is, okay? The first list is these things are easy. So put those things down because I want you to see that in front of you that some of these things are just easy. You're not struggling all the time everywhere. Okay, maybe it's easy for you, for example, to be hygienic. Look, if you're severely depressed, that is not an easy thing. Okay, so make that column. It's easy for me to take care of myself physically. It's easy for me to eat healthy. Or it's easy for me to be disciplined and get up and go to work every day on time, whatever it is. The middle list is these things are getting easier. And these are things where you feel like you're gaining ground. You've got some traction. And then the last list is these things are hard. Right now, these things are really hard. They're hard because you don't have enough practice, so they're not habituated. They're hard because they're risky and you're afraid or they're new and you haven't learned them yet. You don't have enough preparation and information. So make those three lists. These are easy. This is getting easier. And these are hard. And what I want you to do is focus on that last list. Okay? You can do it. I can do it. Mental and emotional health is about growing. It's about healing. Health, healing, same root, (laughs) okay? It's not about talking endlessly. It's not about talking around in circles and endlessly processing our childhoods. We have to do that. Believe me when I say I've done it and I continue to do it as necessary. But it also means we're healing. We're living differently. We're growing. It's about becoming more and more emotionally and mentally strong, Friends, therapy should work. It should work. You should be seeing improvements in your life. Now, sometimes it absolutely gets harder before it gets better. That's a fact. Sometimes you go through the valleys of your own behaviors, your own trauma, everything, before you start seeing the growth. That is most of the time the way the process goes. But friendly reminder that the therapist isn't there to coddle your weaknesses, and they're not there to collude with you in unhealthy or destructive thinking. Nor are they there to reinforce that you are a victim if you are in fact not. They should be walking alongside you as you grow, as you heal. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you even more for sharing this podcast. I continue to get messages, mostly in email. And if you'd like to email me, it's thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. I'd love to hear from you. I love hearing from all of you. But I'm getting messages from people like, oh, hey, you know, my son just sent me your podcast and I've been listening to this with my wife. I mean, it's just really incredible to hear this. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing this time with me and engaging this content. If this podcast resonates with you, share the podcast. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Love yourself while you're healing. Have that inward smile where you kind of know, ah, the things I used to do and the me I used to be. But I'm healing. I'm growing. And you can love yourself all along that process. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino Podcast.